0: modern resilient solutions, such as the aim of new legislation making its way around Capitol Hill, the product of a bipartisan group of lawmakers ready to reform the procurement process that guides rebuilding efforts paid for by Uncle Sam. The bill is labeled the Sustainable Municipal Access to Resilient Technology Infrastructure Act. It would promote efficiencies when it comes time to rebuild following a disaster. It also would increase competition and encourage selection of the best solution for the job. The measure is intended to provide more freedom and choices to communities working to repair damaged or failing systems. This is Hard Facts. I'm Robert Johnson. For years, late-night television viewers have been urged to act fast before deals on all kinds of household products expire. Now, emergency managers have the same advice. In a recent article for the government news website Route50.com, David Paulison and Brian Kuhn want state and local planners to take steps to prepare their roads, bridges, water systems, electrical grids, and telecommunications networks before the next big weather event. They speak from experience. For six years, Coon was director of Florida's Division of Emergency Management. Before that, he held a similar position with Walmart. David Paulison, the longtime chief of Miami-Dade Fire Rescue, rose to national prominence in the wake of Hurricane Katrina when he was tapped by President Bush to help New Orleans recover as the nation's FEMA chief. Paulison took time to discuss his counsel with us. Here's the conversation. Let's do some name-dropping. Give us the names of the hurricanes you've experienced during your career as administrator at FEMA and also as chief of Miami-Dade Fire Rescue.
1: I think the first one that really comes to mind is uh, when I was a brand-new fire chief, probably chief of three or four weeks, when Hurricane Andrew came through South Florida. Born and raised in Florida, been through a lot of hurricanes, but nothing as devastating as that particular storm. We had 200 50 of our firefighters lost their homes, and some 90,000 uh, homes destroyed, and a couple hundred thousand people displaced. Very, very difficult time, but we learned a, a lot of lessons, particularly about why so many of our homes failed, more often not, brand new homes. So we looked very, very carefully at our building codes and worked hard over the next several years to make significant changes in our building codes to withstand those storms as they know we're going to get i several along the way, and then that was I was the U.S. Fire Administrator. Hurricane Katrina made landfall in New Orleans, and New Orleans has always been our poster child for hurricane disaster. It's a low-lying area, the lower income in a lot of the areas in the New Orleans area, and then in the middle of that, I was asked by the president to take over FEMA and try to make some sense out of the disorganization all the way through at the state, the local, and the federal level.
0: But growing up in Florida... You've lived through hurricanes and tropical storms your entire life.
1: You know, we grew up with that, and we knew exactly what to do. We knew how to prepare ourselves, how to shut our windows, make sure we had the supplies. We know you're going to be without power. Back in the day, you'd be out of power for sometimes two weeks. So, you know, we'd stock up on dry ice and freeze jugs of water in the freezer and make sure we had enough food to last us for three or four days until things got going again. As our population changed, a lot of new people coming into South Florida who had not experienced hurricanes, and we saw people not getting ready, not understanding what they had to do. So it was a significant education for newcomers moving into the South Florida area. We worked very hard to make sure that people knew what they had to do and explained very clearly. Some did it, some didn't. And those that didn't obviously had a very difficult time for the first three or four days.
0: From a recovery standpoint, then, do these storms have anything in common?
1: They all have the same thing in common. You know you're going to not have power. you are going to have debris in the roads. Grocery stores are going to be closed. Gas stations are going to be closed. Banks are going to be closed. You're going to have a certain area of the population that their homes are destroyed. And they're not going to be inhabitable. They're going to have to find shelter for those. If the community does not prepare to be able to handle evacuees, have shelters identified, telling people how they're going to get to shelters, who's going to take care of them when they get there. A whole series of things have to fall in place. To get through this, you can't stop the hurricane from coming. You can't stop the floods from coming. Uh, but what you can do is prepare your, uh, yourself and your buildings and your community to deal with the aftermath.
0: It's not like these storms do different kinds of damage each time they come through. They pretty much do the same kind of damage. So we ought to be able to look at that history and know what it will take to prepare in order to stand stronger against those in the future.
1: We know what kind of damage is going to happen, and we know what we have to do to harden our infrastructure to make sure that it'll withstand whatever's going to come our way. The issue has been funding. Most of our communities don't have the funding to do things that need to be done to make sure that the infrastructure they have, the power grid, the bridges, roads, uh, water and sewer systems, harden our municipal buildings, making sure that they are all capable of withstanding the storms as they come through. That has been a huge issue, not having the the money to do those things.
0: A few weeks ago, you co-authored a guest column on this topic. It was published on the website Route 50. Brian Kuhn, who also has a career in emergency management, wrote that article with you. It was called Act Now Before the Storm, Before the Next Storm. Is that easier said than done, given the fact that you just said money's a problem? Are there other obstacles as well? How do we do that?
1: It is difficult recognizing what has to be hardened. It's also educating the public on what they have to do. Everybody's got to play a piece in it. The government can't feed everybody can't provide water for everybody. They can't shelter everybody. So there's got to be some personal responsibility on the individual to take care of themselves and their families. Now, there's some people that can't. Some people either fiscally, physically, or mentally can't do that. And those are the ones that really do have to rely on local government to make sure that they're taken care of and to move them out of harm's way when the storm comes through. But for the most part, most of us can do that if we just simply do the things that we know we have to do. The other piece is identifying your weaknesses in your infrastructure at the local and state level and identifying those and prioritizing those. And then when money does come, you know exactly what you have to do. So those things have to be in place before the dollars even start to flow.
0: Specifically in your article, you mentioned some areas that state and local jurisdictions ought to work on or think about working on. One of those, you touched on it a moment ago improve building codes. What are the obstacles to passage of tougher building codes?
1: The experience that we had in South Florida making significant changes in our building code, particularly for our housing stock, how are we're going to protect our windows, how we're we going to protect our roofs. We struggled with uh, the home builders, believe it or not, claiming, and maybe understandably, worried about the cost of building the house to such extent that people can't afford that. It. it was a legitimate argument. It did not turn out to be true. Houses are sold quite frankly as fast as they can build them. Those are obstacles to come across. It's it's tough to convince sometimes our legislatures that we have to make these changes because they worry about the housing costs also. You have to push hard. You have to have the intestinal fortitude to push forward, and our legislatures have to have the political will to let us make those changes to make sure our homes and our infrastructure are able to withstand these forms. It, It makes life so much easier. When you come out, yeah, you've got trees down, you've got debris everywhere, but your house is intact and with little or no damage, and that's a good feeling.
0: Often the building codes are regulated locally, so they're not governed by the state, which would make it a lot easier. This sort of thing could be a patchwork of rules and regulations even in a region.
1: And that's true. You know, state of Florida, we have a statewide building code but we have different requirements for different counties. Uh, where I live in South Florida, our code's a little more stringent than they are in other parts of the state. And we see, it, take a state like Texas, it's a gigantic state. There's no statewide building code. It's all done by regions. So it's very difficult to have a standard code for everybody. We have to build homes differently in Galveston than, let's say, we do in Dallas. So yeah, you're right. It can be a challenge, but it's a challenge we have to take on.
0: And then there's the issue of implementation. Once you get it changed, the changes themselves that show up in the actual construction, those are not overnight. I think we could pretty well expect that there will be a storm or two or three before we start to see the results of those sorts of policy changes.
1: And that's correct, because what happens is the building codes, even if we make significant changes, are only going to impact the new houses being built. Very seldom do we see a retrofit ordinance goes in place that forces homeowners to do that. However, having said that, with the right types of funding, we can encourage homeowners to retrofit their homes and provide some dollars for them to do that or tax incentives or different things to do if they go back and retrofit their home to bring it up to the new codes.
0: I wanted to talk about retrofits. Usually those are subsidized. You just said so, either through direct financial assistance or tax breaks next April, that sort of thing. Is anyone doing that well right now?
1: There are some. I know here in Florida, we do some of the retrofitting. They get in the break of insurance. If they retrofit, they're bringing up to new codes. Some of the other states are. But again, it falls back to having the funding to do that. There are some funding areas coming down the road. In the article for Disaster Recovery Reform Act that is lies in FEMA will provide infrastructure funding in the future for states and local communities to decide how they want to spend that money and retrofitting at home would definitely be an eligible expense.
0: Another point you raised in the piece was the electrical grid, talking about hardening the grid. Utilities, from my experience, I'm sure from yours as well, they're unique animals. They are different. Some are public, some are private, some are both. How does that get accomplished?
1: The public utilities would be an easier fit for our act that just went got passed because that's public and we can provide funds for that. The private is different. I'm not sure how we're going to do that, but we need to be able to make sure that some of this money, this disaster money that's going to be coming down, hardening our, our infrastructure, somehow be able to get that to some of these private companies. You know, we just saw a PG&E out in Oregon going into bankruptcy because of the wildfires out there. One of their lines that fell down actually caused started the fire and burned tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres, thousands of homes. People lost their lives. So what do we do with that? Obviously, it can't go bankrupt and go out of business. Somehow that's got to be short up. Quite frankly, I'm not sure what the answer is, but we need to figure it out.
0: You also mentioned the power pole project in the Florida Keys. That was the one where they replaced wood poles with iron poles, wasn't it?
1: They did. That well was truly a success story. Those poles they put in uh, were a godsend for that area, and they did very well in the last couple of storms. They didn't shear off like the wooden poles do, and they withstood those winds that went through there. And also some of the tidal surge. So that's an issue that we're looking at across the country. Our electrical grid is old at times. Some electrical companies do very well. I'm here in Florida. Florida Prime Light does a great job of hardening their infrastructure. I see them every day changing poles out. And, um, you know, other states are doing the same. But, again, it goes back down to funding. (laughs) Where does the money come from to do the things we know we have to do, but how do we pay for it?
0: And, of course, the worry is those costs would be passed along to the customers. They would have to pay higher rates for their electricity.
1: That's an issue also. One of those catch-22 things, you know, you don't do it and you get damaged, and then you go go back and fix everything and you pass on that to the customer, or you do it up front and harden your system and pass that on to the customer. So the bottom line is the users of the electricity are going to end up paying for it.
0: It seems like the easiest thing to do of your recommendations in the column anyway, is this suggestion that you develop plans to protect the elderly and the sick. Talk a little bit about what that looks like and why that made your list.
1: There are people, like I said earlier, that simply cannot take care of themselves. And that definitely falls on the shoulders of the local and state government. And what that means is uh, you have to move them out of harm's way. We have to identify shelters ahead of time. That's not something you can do when the storm hits or even just before the storm hits. There's got to be a lot of planning on identifying your shelters, who's going to staff them, who's going to provide the food and water and things you need when you go to a shelter. How are they going to get there? Usually they're not mobile. They're going to have to be buses or cabs or whatever you're going to do it. How are you going to do it to get people to the shelters and take care of them? So we've seen several times where that did not happen. We saw in New Orleans we had people elderly die in nursing homes or abandoned in some cases. Right here in Florida, or last hurricane we had two years ago, we had several elderly people die in a nursing home because there's no electricity, no air conditioning. The nursing home had no backup power, didn't have had no generator to provide air conditioning, and waited too long to move those people to a another facility, and several of them passed away. We can't let that happen. That's just that's just we cannot let that happen. We have to take care of those who cannot take care of themselves, and it can't be a knee-jerk type of thing. It's got to be a plan that you've worked on. You make sure that it is going to work when things do happen.
0: Government is great at doing plans. This one ought to be easier to accomplish if the folks in charge just put their mind to it.
1: You would think so. (laughs) You're absolutely right. It's not rocket science. It's not that difficult to imagine, understand what your risks are, what type of disasters are you going to have. I tell people in the past 50 years what has happened to your community, what type of disasters have you had, uh, what potential for catastrophic event do you have. And you plan around that. You plan around those. Is it flooding? Is it tornadoes? Is it hurricanes? Is it wildfires? Whatever it is, know what you've had in the past, and more than likely you're going to have that again. And that's what you plan for and you work hard at it, and you exercise with plans and, and making sure that, that everyone knows what their role is. And when the time does come, if there's a, a catastrophic event, something, everybody knows what they're supposed to do and how do they do that.
0: It feels like you're really trying to change the mindset to one of preparation versus one of recovery.
1: To me, that's the key. Good preparation is 10 times easier than recover when there was no preparation. Uh, if you plan ahead of time, when things do happen, it makes the recovery much easier and much smoother and just makes everybody's life much better than it could be if you had to not have a good plan in place and exercise that plan and carry it out. So you're right. My whole theme is let's prepare ahead of time. We know what kind of damage we think we're going to have. Let's shore that up as best we can with the funds that we have. And let's educate people and what do we expect them to do. And let's train our people to make sure everybody's
0: ready. How do you feel about the issue of hardening other infrastructure like roads, bridges, water facilities, those sorts of services that we count on, not just during disasters, but every day? Should those uh, items be opened and examined as soon as possible as well?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. All of those systems can fail during a catastrophic event, and we need to make sure that they are hardened to withstand whatever comes our way, whether it's a water system or sewer system. Obviously, our roads and bridges, like in Miami Beach, they're actually raising their roads higher because they're getting more and more surge coming in as the tides get higher and higher. So they're trying to prepare for the next 20 years by raising their roads, and I see that in other places around the country. The roads, the bridges, the water, the sewer system, the electrical grid, all of those things need to be hardened as best we can uh, with the funding that's available.
0: You're an expert on these topics. Many of us watched you on TV dealing with the aftermath of Katrina. You are well known on these topics. Is it hard, though, for you when you get off the coast, whether that's the Gulf Coast, the East Coast, the West Coast, to the inland communities. Is it harder to sell this idea of preparation and hardening to those folks?
1: No matter where you are, there is some type of catastrophic events could happen. We have wildfires that are not, has nothing to do with storms. The central part of the country has tornadoes. We have river flooding. that's nowhere near the coast, east, east the west coast, all the Gulf Coast. So everybody has something. It's not a tough sell, but it falls back to, gee, you know, do we have the money to do this? And quite frankly, for every dollar we spend on the front side, that's that less amount we have to spend on the back side after the
0: event. Is it possible to do anything without dollars in this area of work?
1: It is. Our education of our individuals, preparing their own homes, those are that relatively inexpensive to do, teaching people what they need to do to protect themselves and their family, training your staff is something that's not that expensive. However, when we get down to protecting our infrastructure outside of normal maintenance it takes money to do that if you're going to harden the electrical grid if you're going to harden your water and sewer department if you're going to harden your police and fire stations and your town hall cuz you want those to survive in new orleans every fire station was destroyed and every police station was destroyed so buildings would not harden we have to make sure that all of that public owned stuff can withstand whatever event we're going to have
0: i've not been in this position but I'm imagining if I sit in a city hall somewhere and maybe we don't have much of a plan today, it could be overwhelming just trying to decide where to start. How do people in those situations overcome the gridlock and get moving?
1: There's a lot of material out there for people to get moving. FEMA has on their website plenty of information there where to start? All 50 state emergency managers attend a meeting called the uh, National Emergency Managers Association, and those 50 state emergency management directors are very knowledgeable about what needs to be done, and they will help any community. And there's also the local emergency managers, the International Emergency Managers Association, and those are the local emergency managers that meet a couple times a year and share information. So the information is available, and how you walk through this. And there's people that are available in every state and at the federal level to help any community get started. That type of help is always free.
0: Wrapping up this conversation, then, from your perspective over all of these years, now looking forward, looking at the increasing intensity of the storms that we're facing here in this country, what do you grade our state of preparedness today? How do you grade us? How are we doing?
1: I would say a B, and I'll tell you why. Before Katrina, a lot of our emergency planning was haphazard. But after Katrina and the type of devastation we had and the notoriety it got around the U.S., I think every state emergency manager, every local emergency manager is asking themselves, what if that was my community? What if that was my state? What if that was my city? Would I have done any better? And the answer would probably could have been no. So we saw a lot of preparation, people getting ready, a lot more interest in planning. This Disaster Recovery Reform Act that uh, went through bipartisan House and Senate is a remarkable piece of legislation to provide a lot of dollars for states and locals to do a better job. The Build Strong Coalition, which helped shove this through, is currently going around the country talking about it, educating people what it's about and how they can get involved and make sure they're ready to start working when the money does start coming down from this particular route. So I'm excited about it. I think we are a B. I'd like to have a C, an A. I'm not sure we're going to get there, but uh, as long as we get our particularly most vulnerable communities up and running with particular infrastructure, it will make our life so much easier down the road.
0: Well, we thank you for the article that you published on Route 50 a few weeks ago. We'll have that link in the show notes for people who want to go read that. We also appreciate your continued service to the country and your focus on this growing national concern.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Find a link to the article from Paulison and Kuhn in the show notes for this episode. Next week, we'll have the latest from Washington on the issues industry follows, transportation funding, resiliency, and climate, from voices you won't hear anywhere else. That's Wednesday, October 30th on Hard Facts, a podcast production of the Portland Cement Association. I'm Robert Johnson. I'll see you then.